0: Welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud for a discerning audience of like-minded nerds. My name is H.J. Doom and this is another of my bonus episodes made possible by the generosity of my patrons. This podcast is fairly cheap to run but as someone who doesn't work, I can only justify getting hold of obscure adventure game books to play because a few people are kind enough to support my ludicrous podcast financially. Thanks so much to Zoe and Ray, who make these even sillier episodes possible, and ensure that I can keep the main podcast coming out every month. You can be like them by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. This episode we are looking at a game book co-written by Gary Gygax, one of the key creators of Dungeons and Dragons, which surely needs no introduction. The other writer was Flint Dilly, an experienced screenwriter and designer. The game book is called Sagard the Barbarian, The Green Hydra, and is one of a series of four game books published in the nineteen eighties featuring the adventures of the titular Barbarian. It was published in the UK by Corgi Books in 1985 with internal illustrations by Les Morrill and cover art attributed only to Transworld Books, which suggests it was some art that the publishers had lying around, which just happened to feature a barbarian fighting a hydra, which is the sort of thing that could only really have happened in the mid-1980s. Without any further ado, let's dive in. (laughs) I don't usually read the back matter, the back cover blurb from the adventure game books that I cover, but I cannot resist reading you the back cover of Sagard the Barbarian Book 2, The Green Hydra. So, brace yourselves. A new solo adventure series from the legendary co-creator of the Dungeons & Dragons game. You, all in capitals, are Sagard the barbarian, the lone survivor of a bloody ambush. You, all in capitals, must carry out a life or death mission for your homeland and tribe. You, all in capitals, will encounter unimaginable horrors, the indestructible smoke demon, the hideous night ripper with razor-edged claws, and the slithe assassin. But will you survive the most dangerous adventure of your life, in the tomb of the green hydra fight bloody battles against merciless foes there can be no going back no surrender live or die the choice is yours exclamation mark i think it's fair to say this sets out its stall pretty explicitly on the back cover i do like a blurb that really tries to properly sell you on the book you're about to read and this does a great job of doing that. Unlike the fighting fantasy books we've covered, there's no introductory section that governs the rules of the game book. You actually encounter the rules as you go along, which is quite exciting. So I've not played this before, so I will be learning the rules at the same time you do, assuming you haven't played Sagar the Barbarian game books before. When I open it to the first Page proper there is a map showing Sagard's village and some low quality pretend place names like Airdy, rattick Rayed, Hooker Marsh, Danamatia, Southorp, pretty sure I've been to a sales conference in Southorpe and Yate. So we're in very very silly place name territory at the outset. As as I said, rather than tell you a bit about what's going to happen, it kind of just throws you in at the deep end. So I'll just read the introduction such as it is. After his adventure in the lair of the Ice Dragon, the Ratikan Barbarian Sagard has become a full warrior in his tribe. In early spring, he sets out with his tribesmen on a trading mission to the city of Sothorpe, to exchange furs and pelts for gold pieces. Crossing through the southern marshes, however, they are attacked by hookahs, and after a furious battle, only Sagard and one hookah brave remain. Thus begins Book 2, The Green Hydra. And there's a little note about what to do if you've played the first one, which we haven't, so I'm going to ignore it. So we turn over onto the first section proper, and we get a nice four-page illustration of the Hooker Brave, who's, I'm going to say, medium racist. I'm going to say not very racist. I realise as a white man, it's not for me to judge the level of racism applied to fictional fantasy cultures. But from my perspective, this is slightly racist, I would say. Probably not deliberately so. There is a distinct Native American look to the artwork. The Brave is coming out of the swamp, in a really nice dynamic pose. Actually, it's a nice nice bit of art. And he's got a knife and a spear and braids and feathers in his hair and tribal war paint. That's very much the, the look of the thing. So let's press on section one. A hookah warrior, his skin emblazoned with war paint and his feathered spear held high, charges across the murky swamp at you. Holding your sword ready, your steel-hewn muscles ache from combat and your heart pounds with rage. If this is your first hero's challenge, trademark, book, turn to the end and read the combat instructions. And there's a little note to say if you gained a sword in the first book, retain the benefits of it. If not, you're using a regular sword. A, A standard sword, not a prestige sword, and it will have no effect on combat. So we've got a little stat block telling me that I'm Sagard level three and that the Hookah Warrior I'm facing is level two. So let's have a look at the rules. Slightly patronizing note uh, from Gary Gygax. Uh, Instructions always make things seem more complicated than they really are. If you've made it this far in the book, the fighting rules should be a snap. Basically, they are common sense. When in doubt about anything, consider what would really happen. Like that's pretty big talk from the inventor of Dungeons & Dragons, famously one of the more impenetrable role-playing game systems ever created, especially in the early editions. Uh, we will need a D4. There is actually, you, you can flip the pages of the book to create a four-sided dice, which is always a nice bonus for people who didn't have access to gaming shops, but Obviously as a nerd of long standing, I have lots of D4s so it tells me that you there are three possible outcomes to a fight you can win lose or flee. Uh, winning a fight when you've reduced enemy hit points to zero, losing a fight you lose a fight when your number of available hit points falls to zero and you can try and flee. Uh, that's a 50/50 roll and if you flee successfully read the flee section at the end of the combat page. Some some adversaries are impossible to flee from. We are warned. They are specially marked. Fail to flee, continue the combat normally. Effectively, how it works, I'm going to summarise, because it being Gary Gygax, it may be obvious, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be long-winded about it. Uh, We take it in turns to punch each other in the head, just like in a real fight, and you roll a d4 for each fighter, and the result on the d4 indicates how much damage you do. So, for instance, as a level three barbarian. If my d4 rolls a one or a two, I deal one point of damage. If it rolls a three, I deal two points. Four, I deal three points. Uh, So I'm always going to deal at least one point of damage. And once I punched my opponent in the head, he or she then gets an opportunity to punch me in the head. And we continue doing that until one of us has to have a lie down. So that's, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, you can like level up. That's a thing you can do, apparently. So if you level up, then the amount of damage you do with each D4 roll improves. And also tells me that there are various bonuses that we can get. Uh, trophies, experience marks. Uh, we need 60 experience marks to move up to level 4. We can get special items, weapons and armor, all the usual things. You can regain hit points, apparently. And your hit points don't recover between combats. So that's a standard thing, I guess. But yeah, it it does bear saying. So we start off with 20 hit points, level three, and we go back to the section. So hopefully that long-winded explanation has been suitably Gygaxian for you. I'm going to pause and roll some dice while I fight this slightly racist caricature of a villain. He's got 10 hit points and if he rolls a one, he doesn't do any damage to me at all. So I, I, I should be able to defeat him, but you know, never bet on anything when playing Fighting Fantasy style books. I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, that uh, fight didn't last particularly long. I defeated the Hookah Brave, and he did five points of damage to me, leaving me with a total of 15. So yeah, moved on to another section. All the sections have got little subtitles. So uh, this section is entitled Defeating the Hookah Warrior. His spear broken, the Hookah Warrior takes flight through the oozing swamp. Gain one experience mark. So that's one out of 60. You consider chasing him. But you have already fought enough for one day, and let him run, knowing that he will soon alert his tribesmen. All around are the remains of a terrible struggle. The hookahs ambushed your small trading party, and now their spears stick out of the knee-deep muck like pampas fronds. Hookah shields float in the water, along with the tattered remains of your tribesmen. After dragging the bodies of your people to dry ground, you build a funeral pyre, and commend their bodies to the flame in the flickering firelight you eat food rations which will no longer be needed by your comrades and regain three hit points that takes us to eighteen hit points i have to say it's not suggesting that we're particularly cut up by what is by any stretch of the imagination a massacre inspecting the corpses you discover that One is different from all the others, not a hookah at all. Instead of being covered by bright war paint, this creature, looking more reptilian than human, is clad in black leather armour, and his skin is a leathery, sickly grey. On his chest is a medallion. Wiping off a layer of slime that covers it, you discover that it is made of glassy volcanic rock and etched with cryptic hieroglyphics, which seem to glow as you try and read them. I mean, I think if something seems to glow, it's actually glowing. I'm not sure that seeming to glow is a particularly meaningful way of imagining a thing that is quite clearly actually glowing. Little writing tip there from your old pal H.J. Doom. Whenever you find yourself writing the word seem or it appears, always check whether it's better to just write that the thing actually happens. Taking the medallion as a token of the battle, you slip it around your neck Sadness drifts like mist through the darkening swamp. As the sun drops below the horizon, crickets begin their nightly chant, and black bats flutter in overhanging trees. And though you try, your mind cannot explain the mysterious gurgling sounds from deep in the brooding gloom. As darkness covers the sky like a veil of death, you search through the pile of goods you have salvaged. You find several gold and silver trinkets which will be worth many gold coins to the traders in southorp You must make a choice. You may either continue on to southorp or return to your village. Well, I came here to have a big manly barbarian adventure and I'll be damned if I'm going home now. So onwards to southorp This section is entitled The Abandoned Canoe. Not far away from the massacre site is an abandoned canoe. Grimly realising that the hookahs who stealthily paddle to the ambush will not be needing it anymore, you consider taking it. It offers you the most expedient mode of travel, and perhaps the most dangerous. With it, you can be quickly away from the hookahs, but you might be visible to owl-eyed hookahs when the moon comes up. Shunning the canoe, you may head south by land. By daybreak, you would reach the ancient road. The land route, however, has pitfalls of its own, for the hookahs often lay traps on the marsh-lined trails. So, do we take the canoe or the land route? You see, this is good. I like this. This feels like a proper decision, and it's given us sort of costs and benefits of both decisions. I am going to take the canoe, because you should never look a gift canoe in the mouth. So we will go canoeing down south. This section is called Taking the River. The canoe drifts slowly through an eerie swamp, filled with the twisted trees and curtains of moss that hang like waiting serpents. The darkening sky is a swirl with bats, and from the distant woods comes the glimmer of hungry, glowing eyes. Stilling your breath, you paddle softly, knowing that the slightest sound could bring a teeming flock of hooker arrows. Regain five hit points. Random, but all right. Takes us up to 20 again. In time, the throbbing of distant drums begins. At first, you only hear them to the west, but gradually the haunting rhythms come from all sides. Their hollow, monotonous beat sends terror up your spine. The drums can only mean one thing. The hookahs are on a death hunt. You hear intermittent rustling sounds from the shore, but see nothing. Your muscles scream for a rest, but still you summon the strength to paddle harder. As you watch for motion in the woods, a woman's voice calls to you out of the darkness. Come, brave warrior, let me heal your pains. Looking to the far bank, you can see a shapely form silhouetted in the moonlight. Curious, you start to turn the canoe when a sudden jolt throws you forward. In the instant before the canoe tips, you see what appears to be a large log in the dark, murky water. Suddenly, the log seems to split in half, revealing two long rows of blade-sharp teeth. Desperately, you dive from the canoe as a monstrous mouth crushes the front half of your canoe. You dip under the dark, slimy water. Terror fills your heart as you brush against the scales of a hideous beast. Rising to the top, you hear a bestial hiss and look up in horror. A hideous creature is silhouetted against the full moon. It stands ten feet full. I think they mean tall, but it's written full. And has the body of a dinosaur with the head of a crocodile. It is a crocosaurus. I mean, that is an awesome name. I do feel as though, given that crocodiles date from a time think, when basically dinosaurs were about. There's an argument for saying that there's a redundancy in, say, the body of a dinosaur. Also, bodies of dinosaurs are quite varied. Armed with sharp claws and pulverising jaws, the crocosaurus is a formidable enemy. Its only weakness is that it is slow. Were you on dry land, you might be able to flee from it, but you are knee-deep in swamp. Because of your speed, you strike twice for each time he strikes you. There is a full-page illustration of the crocosaurus. And I'm going to say it, it looks like a big crocodile, which I think is basically what it is. It's got a mouthful of canoe, which I think is great. And it's sort of eyeballing you as it crushes the canoe in its jaws and one of those kind of big power moves. Yeah, it's a good illustration. The eye on this seems really good. The uh, the swamp water is really nicely rendered as well. So, Seigard the Barbarian must now face the... Awful might of the crocosaurus now, the crocosaurus is level five and it is doing between two and four points of damage each round so yeah it's doing a lot of damage and it's got 25 hit points but as mentioned earlier i am striking it twice so let's get stabby and i'm going to roll some dice Okay, I have just killed the crocosaurus, Um, despite telling me a couple of sentences ago that I could not flee. Actually, there was an option to flee, and I feel as though actually fleeing from the crocosaurus might have been the right decision. I did kill it, but I'm down to two hit points on the back of it, and I feel as though running away might have been a a good plan. So yeah, we'll see how the adventure goes from here. Uh, If I was to have died, um, the instruction is just to begin the book again. So yeah, it was a straightforward kill or be killed, or run away, and I think run away the best option. So let's move on. Beating the Crocosaurus. The Crocosaurus floats lifelessly, its evil reptilian eyes staring at the moon and its claws twitching. Gain four experience marks. That takes us to five. Washing your blade, you become aware of the bent figure of an old woman holding a lantern and watching you from the shore. Come, my lad, I shall wash your wounds. Do you wish to trust the woman or not? I mean, in the last section, I'm pretty sure we saw a shapely silhouette. So was she doing some kind of illusion? I mean, she's probably a witch. Let's be honest. She's probably a witch. But on two hit points, I think it's probably worth just risking witch stuff in order to try and get some hit points back. So let's see what happens. The Swamp Woman. Your senses alerted. You step towards the witchy hag. It's a bit rude. Like being old is not a crime. As you reach her, she motions for you to follow her, and you do, your sword drawn. Several hundred yards along a muddy path you come to her shed, fashioned of many small trees, all bent to form a roof and walls. Carefully you enter the sparsely furnished hut. For generations the crocosaurus has preyed upon all who come into this part of the woods. Even the hookers yield this place to him. Only I escaped his wrath, because it used me as bait, I could not count the number of men I have lured to their deaths on the river over the centuries. She laughs strangely. For though it is hard to believe this wrinkled face was once young and beautiful, I find it straightforward to believe that someone who's old might have once been beautiful. That is a thing that's within my gift. I think it's because I understand that anyone who is beautiful now will, assuming they don't die, become old and wrinkled fairly inevitably. It's not like it's an option. As she speaks, she rubs you with an ointment and your pain subsides. As you heal, your eyes grow heavy. The gates of sleep begin to swing closed and the ravages of time melt from the hag's face. A decade recedes each minute until she becomes the young and beautiful vision you saw on the shore. As you reach for her, she lifts her hand to your eyes and says... Sleep for now, Ratican, and she lowers your eyelids. You fall into a deep sleep. Regain all your hit points. Get in. When you awake in the morning, she is gone. On the floor is a shiny coin, and near it in delicate handwriting is a note. Follow the trail of coins, and you shall have your path away from here. Picking up the coin, you gaze out of the strange house and see yet another coin shining on the trail far away. Picking up the second coin, you see a third, much further down the trail. All day long, you follow the trail of coins. It leads through shrouded paths of incredible beauty, where spring plants flourish under waterfalls and across the branches of mighty trees. Each time you think you have lost the path, another coin is caught by the sunlight and leads you on. Finally, when you reach what turns out to be the last coin, you find a note. Follow the setting sun and you shall find the ancient road. The hookahs will bother you no more. One day, Ratican, we shall meet again, Marianta, Your heart flutters as you remember the stunning beauty that stared down at you as you drifted to sleep. Yes, one day we shall meet again, you say. And it sends us straight to another section without giving us any kind of choice, which I think is a little bit aggravating in a game book only 101 sections long, but hey-ho. Also, and this is kind of aggravating as well, the section that I'm about to read is approximately a page worth of text, but it's split across two pages. There's no illustration beneath the text, just some blank space. We only used half of this page, I guess, to make the book seem longer than it actually is. So yes paid for some lovely blank real estate on these facing pages. That is quite irritating. Uh, The Ancient Road. Stepping from the forest path, you come upon a tall fluted column with a pink alabaster bust on top. It is nearly impossible to determine how long the stern face atop the pillar has stared blankly off to the horizon, or what race he is. There's some more problematic material just thrown out there. Investigating the site, you discover that a wide road of granite blocks divides the forest. Surely this must be the ancient road which once connected Southwark to the Northern Kingdoms. For a long stretch, both north and south, it is surrounded on both sides by long rows of broken columns. Once mighty armies traversed this road, but it is now empty and overgrown. It's a personal thing, but I do love adventures that take place in the ruins of a fallen civilization. Just really, really appeals to me for some reason. You follow the road southward, and by late day you can see the jagged towers of Southwarp silhouetted on the horizon like broken teeth. Knowing that bandits often ambush night travellers on this road, you decide to finish your journey in the morning. You may either pitch your camp in the woods, chancing the beasts of the night, or sleep in the ruins of an ancient structure that basks silently in the fading sunlight. I think I will take my chances with the beasts having been warned that there are bandits on the road I think stepping off the road the lesser of two evils in this situation although I do want to say again I do appreciate being given a meaningful choice or the appearance of a meaningful choice so yeah it feels as though I'm making a tactical decision rather than just picking between two random options and I I like that. The Kingdom of Darkness. In the light of day, men rule the world, but when night falls, other creatures rise from their secret lairs to reclaim it. Snakes slither up from moist grottoes, bears and wolves venture from dens, and other unnamed horrors rise from unholy places to reign over the Kingdom of Darkness. As the red sunset drains from the sky like blood from a wound, you build a small fire and cook the last of your food. Regain five hit points. Maybe I should have saved the food as I'm on maximum hit points already. Leaving the embers glowing, you climb a sturdy branch and drift slowly off to the world of dreams. It's nice to see a character getting plenty of sleep. In the depths of night, when the sky is canopied by brightly glowing stars, you awaken to a soft hooting sound. Opening your eyes, you stare directly into a yellow glowing eye. With animal instinct, you lurch back to avoid having your skull crushed in a massive beak. Coming to your senses, you realise that you were very nearly food for a night-tripper. A hideous cross between an owl and a bear, five feet tall with rending claws and a crushing beak. Jumping from the tree while ripping your sword from its scabbard in midair, you prepare to do battle with four night-trippers. I mean, they're owl-bears, aren't they? Let's be 100% honest. These are owlbears, and because this is not a TSR product, Gary Gygax can't use the protected term owlbear, but he feels he can describe what is essentially an owlbear, and have an illustration on the facing page, which is transparently an bear. He just can't call it an owlbear. So yeah, we have to do a fight with four owlbears, and they are not too much of a challenge, I'm hoping. Three of them are level two, one of them is level one, so they all have a chance to do zero damage. Uh, One of them's got nine hit points, one's got eight, one's got five, and the last one's also got five. So I'm going to roll probably quite a lot of dice in order to defeat these four legally distinct from owlbear, owlbears. I have defeated at some length the four Night Rippers and found for all Gary Gygax's claims that the rules are very straightforward. I did come across two edge cases which the rules didn't cover. So well done Gary Gygax. The first is that when you're fighting multiple creatures it's not clear whether you fight them one at a time or sequentially. I chose to fight them sequentially because that seemed fairest. I think I'd have really, really struggled to survive fighting them all at the same time. And also, assuming you fight them sequentially, if you kill one on your combat round, does the next Night Ripper get an attack before you get yours? Or do you begin another combat round when a new opponent appears? That's not clear either. Anyway, I made a spot ruling, as suggested. Um, Not really easy to work out what would really happen in a combat system that involves people taking it in turns to punch each other in the head, but I did my best. Uh, And I defeated the Night Rippers and I've been reduced to eight hit points. Slaying the Midnight Horrors. The Night Rippers litter the ground around you. Gain three experience marks. Gazing out over the forest, you see the eyes of hungry scavengers waiting to devour the spoils of the battle. Avoiding the hungry predators, you step towards the ancient building, knowing that wild animals are generally loath to enter the dwellings of man. Entering the ancient structure, you note a strange, unearthly glow surrounding the ancient stones. In the moonlight, it is clear that you have entered the ruins of a temple of some long forgotten religion. The roof, cracked in the centre and letting in a jagged shaft of crystal moonlight, is supported by high vaulted arches of cut stone. You shudder. As you observe that the marble floor is littered with the remnants of broken idols of one-eyed gods, multi-armed goddesses and cloven-hoofed demons. Stepping over an array of broken columns to an ancient stone cube that sits undisturbed in the centre of the structure, you watch the forest. And it's sending us straight to another section for the second time in a row. Midnight dreams. As the night passes, dreams merge with reality. The medallion at your chest seems to glow and you are surrounded by misty spirits. Faces of beautiful priestesses clothed in diaphanous gowns appear before you and chant ancient hymns. For ages we have awaited a wandering Rakitan lad to boldly venture onward and stop slithe evil spread. Not the best rhyme ever. Our living breath is stolen by undead, grey-skinned lords. Take courage, mighty warrior. Take ambroth and your sword. In living tomb of yonder, the chained evil lies. I'm assuming it's chained because that's the only way it probably scans. Wealth and power come to he who smites the hydra's eye. Peach colored dawnlight filters through the ancient structure as you awaken from deep slumber. Looking around, you see no trace of the misty creatures save for a golden chalice at your feet. For a moment, you eye the cup and the strange glowing liquid inside. Does love a glowy thing, this book. The liquid is ambroth, an ancient potion associated with luck. Lifting the cup to your lips, you sip strength and spirit luck fill your body return to full hit points spirit luck will save you from death once in the course of battle you may return to four hit points to save yourself mark this on your status chart i'm enjoying these closely resembling but legally distinct from dungeons and dragons names like status chart for character sheet and experience marks rather than experience points it's got a, a pleasant off-brand feel to it. Very much the supermarket own-brand cola of the uh, gamebook world, this trek to Southorpe. Journeying to the city, you contemplate your dream of the night before. You are vexed. You have never heard of the Hydra, but the dream seemed real, and had there been no spirits, there would have been no Ambroth. By late afternoon, you reach the decaying city of Southorpe. Once, Southorpe was a powerful, walled city, capital of an important kingdom but a Davinian invasion has left it a city of broken granite shattered towers and crippled men stepping down an elaborate maze of narrow rubble strewn cobblestone streets you are astonished by the great array of people for you have never been to a city before though destroyed in spirit the city bustles with commerce peasants shuffle down the streets carrying burdens young girls sell fruit and dried beef Yatian tradesmen in small carts shout as they whip their oxen. Gaudily dressed vixens beckon from alleyways and tattered beggars with stumps for arms and legs beg for arms. As you have no map, you enlist the aid of an olive-skinned boy from the southern gyptic deserts to help you for the price of a small hucka trinket. As you near the shop of Chaga the Trader, the young boy whispers to you, Chaga is a fair trader. Do not refuse his price. Chaga's shop is dark and dingy and laden with goods, most of which appear to have been left behind from the war. Battered helmets, scarred swords and ripped chainmail hang on the wall, while crude goblets and miscellaneous utensils are piled in unsightly heaps about the floor. At the large table in the centre of the shop, several men play games with dice. Upon seeing your mud-spattered garb, they eye you with ill-concealed contempt. It's like they've met me. Chaga the Trader, a dun-coloured Hitaxian wearing a dust-coloured cape and a patch over one eye, sits on a high chair behind the long counter. He does love telling me what race people are. It's a, it's a unusual and slightly off-putting preoccupation in this day and age. I mean, it's nice that they've created a multicultural world and are populating it with people from different parts of that world. I don't have a problem with that. It's just the way they've gone about it. I'm going to assume their motives were pure. Uh, it's just an artefact of being written 40 years ago that's that's creating that slightly off-putting element on this occasion. There is an illustration of Chaga. It looks a uh, down-at-heel sort, I have to say. Only one Ratican, he says, spotting you. Usually your tribe sends many men. The rest of my party was killed in ambush you answer though many hookers paid with their lives all who kill hookers are friends of mine the trader turns and snaps his fingers at a young boy bring my friend some kashka. in moments the young boy returns with a small cup of a dark bitter sludge-like liquid and what have you for me Chaga asks looking warily over your shoulder at the other men in the shop you pull out a pocketful of jewels you took from the hookah you must have killed many hookahs indeed he says studying your jewels i will give you one hundred gold pieces they are worth one hundred and fifty you say at this there is a rustling about the shop you turn to see all eyes upon you as you are young i will tell you this only once. So listen well, Chaga makes only one offer and that offer is taken. At this point you can either take his offer or you can refuse it. Well I'm going to take his offer because the young lad told me that the offer is always fair and if you can't trust a street urchin who can you trust? So I will take his offer and avoid further bloodshed. Also, I have literally no idea what the buying power of 100 versus 150 gold pieces is. Am I haggling over the price of a microwave or the price of a family car? I have no idea. It looks like I'm about to find out. The trader's price. Heeding Chaga's warning, you sell the jewels at his price. You have made a wise decision. There is only one other thing. What is that? you respond. I have no gold coins. You must exchange for goods in my shop. Looking around the shop, you see that all of the items are grossly overpriced. For your 100 gold pieces, you would only be able to buy a small leather jerkin and a ration kit with food to last you for a few days with 20 gold pieces left over. While you contemplate, you notice that the other five men in the shop are taking particular interest in your decision? Ah, uh, Do you want to still accept his offer, or do you want to change your mind? Well, I'm going to change my mind. No one takes Sagard the Barbarian for a ride, possibly. Or possibly many people do that. I have no way of knowing. But I am going to change my mind. I, I feel as though I need to stand up for my honour if I come home to my village with a <laughs> leather jerkin and some food that I've eaten on the way. I don't think they're going to be too impressed with me. And this is, as far as I can tell, still basically my actual mission is to go and get some useful stuff from the city. So yeah, we're going to change our mind. In defiance of Chaga's warning, indignant, you swoop the jewels into your pocket. As you turn, you hear a low metallic clatter as the men in the shop draw their weapons. You eye them carefully, Though none of them could stand alone against you in combat, there are five of them of all ages and strengths. One is a grizzled Tainite veteran, another is a tall olive skinned Vexian in baggy pants and a conical tap. The third and fourth are both Yatian peasants, one fat, one thin, and the final henchman is a timid but vicious looking gyptic, the kind of man who starts fights but flees quickly. Slice him! The gyptic shouts, but none of them move. As you step towards the door, they move in a circle around you. Get him, you lazy brigands, or it's to the street with a lot of you, Chaga calls. Knowing that you must fight them in order to get out of the shop, you strike first. You may attack them in any order you want. So, we have got me on full health, and with the ability to regain all of my health. The Tainite veteran, who's rubbish. The Fexian, who's worse, the Fat Yatian, who's terrible but has quite a lot of hit points, that makes sense. The Thin Yatian, who is awful but has loads of hit points, that makes no sense. And the Gyptic Henchman, who is both absolutely awful and has no hit points. So actually, this looks like I mean, it's going to be very tedious rolling my way through this, this combat, but. I do not expect to take serious damage off the back of it. I am, however, going to make sure that I stab the Gyptic henchman first because I do hate someone who incites a fight and then skidaddles pronto when things look bad. So I'm going to roll probably quite a lot of dice. I'll see you in a moment. I have defeated all of the trader's henchmen. Uh, Bizarrely, the one that gave me the most trouble wasn't the veteran. It was the fat Yatian, who uh, just kept punching me in the face. Uh, I lost 10 hit points over the course of the interminable combat, but I have emerged victorious, beating the trader's henchmen. The shop is a shambles and littered with moaning henchmen. Gain four experience marks. Angry, you hold your sword to Chaga's throat. The trader begs to you spare me you eye the treacherous hitaxian icily as he pleads for his life i am a rich man i will give you gold and jewels you may have anything in my store this is another page where there's one page of text spread over two pages for no clear reason a crowd forms at the door in it are three large, scarred men who look as strong as you. Looking over their rugged complexions, cold countenances, and python vests, you guess that they are serpent worshipping Tainites. You must make a quick decision. You may either grab the nearby leather jerkin and ration kit of Chagas, keep your money, and let the rabble in, thus giving you time to slip out of the shop. Or you may grab for the gold and jewels, risking an encounter with the snake lovers. The gold and jewels would come to one thousand five hundred gold pieces, more than your entire tribe has ever seen. Do you want to take the money, or do you want to try for the jewels? I'm going to try for the jewels because like, it's an adventure. Coming back, as I said before, with everyone dead and like Primark's finest leather vest doesn't strike me as a particularly impressive way to come home. So I'm going to take a chance on the Golden Jewels, even though I am literally dreading the prospect of having to do another fight. Hmm, this doesn't bode well. Greedier than the Greedy Man as chaga begs the rabble slowly issues in the door like a bucket of thick mud paying little attention to them you put your sword to his throat give me all of your gold and jewels and i might spare you hyxtaxian swine trembling with fear he pulls a box from behind his desk and you tuck it under your arm you turn to see the three Tanite thieves rush towards you you will have to be very lucky to survive this one they strike first you must flip a one to flee or roll a one. Okay, so this looks pretty grim. The Tainite Thieves are all level three, meaning that they do between one to three points of damage, and they've got 15 hit points apiece. So I'm just doing a little bit of mental calculation. So I've got a minimum of 15 rounds to face. Now that's if I do massive, if I do maximum damage every single attack. That will be 15 rounds of combat, meaning that I will take a minimum of 15 hit points. I've got 10, and I can fill up my my life bar, my hit points again, with the spirit luck. I think I'm going to die, but I also think I'm going to roll some dice. Actually, what I'm going to try and do is just flee every round, I think. That's the sensible thing to do in this situation is just try and make it out of there. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to roll some dice, hopefully not too many dice, and try and scarper. Okay, I successfully ran away by a, like a big scaredy cat. And I was reduced to three hit points. And then I used my spirit luck to get myself back to 20. And then as luck would have it, I escaped on the same round that I used my spirit luck. So I've moved on to a section entitled A Costly Escape. Knowing that you cannot win, you dash out of the shop, throwing the jewels behind you. The men whose greed is surpassed by nothing in the realm forget you and fight each other for the jewels. For your battle, you are by a small degree wiser. Gain one experience, Mark. Your valuables are gone, but you are still alive. For the rest of the afternoon, you adopt the disgraceful posture of a beggar to buy a meal. Like, if you've got no other income, there's nothing actually wrong with begging. That's fine. But I'm not adopting the posture of a beggar, I am literally a beggar. I'm not pretending to be a beggar, I'm literally begging for food because I don't have any money. Anyway a day of scorn passes but finally an old withered woman takes pity on you and drops a single silver coin into your hat proceed hanging your head to the next section well i'm doing exceptionally well i do like that running away sometimes the right choice that's pretty cool dying man's message a tall stein of Southwark drink at the inn of the merry wench quenches your thirst regain 4 hit points aggravatingly i'm at full through a halo of acrid smoke you watch the night people of Southhorpe, Steely-eyed Hitaxian gamblers shake dice. Laughing Chandanese musicians pluck exotic harps, strum strange instruments and beat on tropical drums. Wide-mouthed braggarts of all races quaff drinks and tell tall tales, while lusty gyptic dancers perform on thick oak tables. So there's a, an image of the inn of the merry wench and um, it's fine yeah it's a sort of riot of of somewhat exotic types but not as bad as you might have feared from the description your eyes settle on an extraordinary girl atop the minstrel's gallery she wears a sky-coloured gown and the smoky haze of the inn forms a halo around her cascading river of golden hair set high in her perfectly chiselled face are translucent blue eyes which radiate both strength and adventure. Quickly, you step across the floor of the inn to introduce yourself, but before you can catch her eye, she has vanished like an apparition. Stepping outside for a breath of fresh air, you hear footsteps. In moments, you hear laboured breathing, and a fleeing figure painfully shambles up the cobblestone steps. As he draws closer, you can see that his face is twisted in a desperate grimace. Before the grotesque figure reaches you, he drops to the ground. Tossing your drinking glass aside, you rush to the collapsed figure. It is an old man dressed in ornate robes and clutching a scroll in his bent fingers. Blood flows from his mouth and a glass dagger protrudes from his back. As you bend down, he speaks to you through bloody lips. And take this, my son, and give it to Ketza-Kota!' With surprising strength, he thrusts the scroll into your hand and lets out a loud gasp as his eyes flicker with terrible intensity. Blessed be you if you succeed. Cursed be you if you fail. His final message delivered. His voice dies. His eyes glaze over and beyond pain. His head cracks on the cobblestone. As you close his eyelids, you sense the presence of evil and look up. A slithe assassin, dressed in black, with a face both skeletal and reptilian, stands over you. From behind shining teeth and a long, vivid reptilian tongue, a raspy voice croaks. Give me the scroll, Ratican fool! Though you have no intention of letting him keep the scroll, you are of two minds as to how to stop him. You can attack him, hoping to surprise him or give him the scroll in the hope of ambushing him. I feel like maybe the straight attack is the better plan, but the scope for giving him the scroll in the hope of ambushing him going humorously wrong is just too strong. Like I give him the scroll and he vanishes in a puff of smoke and I'm there going, well, that was a silly thing to do. But I do want to find out what happens if you give him the scroll in hope of ambushing him? Stalking the Assassin. Reluctantly, you hand the scroll to the sly assassin. You are lucky tonight, Ratigan dog, for I shall spare you. Then, like a shadow in the night, he vanishes. Instinctively, you dive to the ground as a dagger whizzes past your ear and smashes on a stone wall behind you, spilling poison that sizzles on the cobblestone. Leaping to your feet you set out after the assassin. So I correctly predicted what was going to happen if I gave him the scroll, which is cold comfort because he's now got the scroll and I'm having to chase him. Growing up in Ratican forests endowed you with climbing skills which would amaze a city dweller. Thus it is with great ease that you scale the side of the inn of the Merry Wench. From window ledge to balcony to rain gutter and finally to roof, you gain a height advantage on your opponent. Reaching the roof, you spy the assassin as he makes his way up the torchlit stone road to his horse, which sits at the far end of the winding lane. As you carefully make your way across the roof, he turns and looks up towards you. You do not know whether he has seen you or not. Your first opportunity to jump him comes as he steps through a narrow gate in the middle of the lane. Do you want to take this opportunity? Or do you want to continue reading and await your next chance? If you do not take this chance now, you may not come back to it. So I do have a chance to ambush him, after all. That's a clever thing. I do like the idea of giving you multiple options for an ambush. I'm going to take the first option to do a big stab. Jumping the Slyth Assassin. As you descend through the misty night air, the Slyth Assassin's yellow eyes flash up at you. With dazzling speed, he ducks. You land on the ground in front of him, barely retaining your balance. With lightning-fast reflexes, he brandishes a dagger and throws it. The poison dagger flies towards you and you duck. He strikes first, battling the slithe assassin. Okay, ooh, complicated. Never before have you fought so highly trained a killer. The level of the assassin's fighting ability goes down with the number of hit points he has remaining. From 25 to 21, he is level 5. From 20 to 16, he is level 4. From 15 to 10, he's level 3. From 9 to 5, he's level 2. And from 4 and below, he is level 1. It is in your interest to do as much damage as you can quickly, which is good advice, except that there is literally no way of doing additional damage other than rolling damage. So, you know, that's good. Nothing better than advice you can literally not act on. 25 hit points the slive assassin has. I am at least on four hit points, so that gives me, you know, a chance, even though he's going to be doing loads of damage to me. Uh, I can't flee, so this is just a straight up fight. And looking at his attack profile, yeah, it could be kind of quick. So I'm going to roll some dice and probably die. Somewhat gallingly, I died having reduced the Sly assassin to two hit points remaining, at which point he only had a 50-50 chance of doing any damage to me at all, and then proceeded to really find his form and repeatedly pummel me. So my adventure ends there, fighting in a back alley with a creature that's been described variously as a bit like a skeleton and a bit like a lizard, which is really unhelpful as descriptions go. But uh, yes, that ends this adventure, at least, of Sagard the Barbarian. I'll be back in a few minutes with some closing thoughts. So that was The Green Hydra, or to give it its full title, Heroes Challenge Trademark Sagard the Barbarian Trademark Gamebook The Green Hydra. This is one of those slightly frustrating episodes where my playthrough doesn't really show the book off to its best advantage, but that's always a risk with the format and I guess I have to take the rough with the smooth. Let's start by looking at what we can say based on that first playthrough. Well, it's fairly well written, although some of the tropes are a little cringy for modern sensibilities. The obsession with describing everyone in terms of their race feels Very Robert E. Howard, and not in a good way. I'm a huge Robert E. Howard fan, Uh, his work in general, Conan in particular, but if there's one thing I'd recommend not copying from his work, it's his racial essentialism. Man was a big, big racist. That aside, there's some very nice description in some of the sections, and I found it did a very good job of evoking different settings and making them feel unique. We went from a swamp to a city, but both of those felt really nicely realized. Now, Dygax is famously a very dry writer, but that just means his decision to partner with Flint Dilly is a very good one. Dilly has worked extensively in TV, cinema, role playing games, and narrative video games. He's got a diverse CV which includes the 1980s Transformers cartoon, Visionaries, if anyone else in the world remembers them, TSR's Buck Rogers role-playing game, and the excellent Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher's Bay video game. Now, the quality of the writing helps us deal with the fact that there aren't as many choices as a fighting fantasy fan such as myself might be used to. This isn't actually all bad by any means. By limiting the number of choices, the choices that there are can be allowed to feel that much more weighty, provided you do it right. And happily, the book does generally hit that element of having choices matter. It doesn't always give you an option, but when it does, the choice has some heft to it, and the decisions feel as though they've got consequences. Fewer encounters, but there isn't much in the way of filler. All of the encounters, I think, feel fairly exciting. Now, the flip side of that is that sometimes when the design is such that you need to go to the next major node directly, you can end up not having any choice at all for what feels like a long time because they can't afford any digressions. In terms of the game system, the fighting mechanics do leave a bit to be desired. They don't really pop and fights end up feeling very attritional as the fighters take it in turns to knock lumps off one another until one of them goes down. That attritional element makes it hard to actually balance the fights because so much depends on your health. Unlike a fighting fantasy book, which is obviously a more random combat system, there's this grinding inevitability to taking damage. And the book sort of solves it by giving you your life back left, right, and centre. And that means that the fights are balanced basically for having full or very near full health. Those criticisms aside, there's some quite neat wrinkles in some of the fights. I particularly enjoyed the slive assassin, even if it's quite hard to take the slive assassin seriously, because Slyve was, as any child of the 80s knows, one of Mumra's incompetent henchmen. But I like the idea that it got easier as it went along. And there was a sense that once you would got past those early flurry, you might just be okay, even though I, of course, wasn't. I do also really like that running away is a realistic and viable option in multiple fights, which is very rarely the case in fighting fantasy. That sense of cutting your losses and running, that I really like. And knowing that there's the possibility for getting your health back quite frequently makes it easier to make that call to try and get out and fight another day. There's even spot rules for a mass battle. In one of the early sections which we obviously didn't get to see and that's mechanically quite dull but conceptually quite exciting and i did enjoy it now we're also for better or worse given a named character in this story rather than the blank canvas preferred by fighting fantasy this is sometimes a good thing it's less galling to be told what decisions your character makes when there is that degree of separation between you and your character However, there are some drawbacks. By casting you as this barbarian, you make a lot of assumptions about the kind of character that your readership will be able to engage with, and I think it assumes that they're going to be white, male, and heterosexual. Now, in 1985, that's probably the bulk of their target audience, but of course, one reason why role playing was largely white, male, and heterosexual in the 1980s is that the material was aimed squarely at that demographic. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fighting fantasy wasn't much better. You could travel a long way around the lands of fighting fantasy before you actually meet a lady, but at least it didn't cram you into that neat box at the start. I also don't feel as though the story made as much out of the fact that your character is this Conan-style barbarian as maybe it could have done. I feel like rewarding you for doing bull-headed and stupid things a bit more often might have been fun. But that's by the by. Now moving on to the elements I didn't really didn't get to cover, there's a big one, and that's that this book finishes with a dungeon. It's the last big set piece. And it does the dungeon very differently. Rather than a series of choices, you get a map of the dungeon, which is suitably maze-like and labelled with a bunch of letters. You then draw a line from the entrance, and as you come to a letter, you go to the appropriate section, read it, and then return to the maze when you've done. And this works surprisingly well, and conveys a sense of a twisting labyrinth in an economical way, without needing to write endless more or less identical passages. The sections are labeled with letters, but early on you get access to a version of the map, but it's in code. And if you can break the code, then you'll know which sections are vital to your mission and be able to plot the correct course through the dungeon, which is a really, really nifty approach and probably the the best single design decision in the entire game book. I'm sad that we didn't get to experience it on the playthrough, but trust me, it does play remarkably well. So, in conclusion, I had a mixed experience with my first playthrough, but a rather nicer time, frustratingly, on my second attempt, especially because I went on a much more interesting journey through the swamp. It's one I would cautiously recommend if you can find the right price. I've seen it go for between 10 and 50 English pounds on the internets, it's definitely not worth the upper end of that and arguably worth the bottom end of that. It's still a lot better than the official TSR Endless Quest book we covered some time ago. And that's what happens when you get an actual game designer involved in your adventure game book. I do hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode and I'll be back fairly soon with the next fighting fantasy instalment, which is Book 12 Space Assassin. I do hope you'll join me then. Take care.